So I got interviewed recently. It was by a radio friend of mine, Maddie. My name is Maddie Stutchbury and... Her show, which she was interviewing me for, was all about the big questions. And I am chatting to Zasha about death for my segment series. As we got going, I mentioned this podcast. Is this your Don Quixote one? No, I loved it though. I listened to like the first two episodes, I think. The topic is really like esoteric, but I think that that's what makes it interesting because it's so niche. Which I get. In English, a lot of people feel that way. We'll meet Anne Walsh properly in the next episode, but she does get to the heart of it. If Don Quixote had been written in English, people would have been perhaps more aware of the resonance that he's had. Of course, he's been translated many times into English. But when you compare him with Shakespeare, the idea that certain things are inherited from him hasn't quite entered the popular conscience, perhaps. But perhaps it should. Because, as you'll see, Don Quixote, even in English, is everywhere. But before we get there, let's have a look at how Don Quixote crossed from 17th century Spain, that's 1605, into the 21st century English-speaking world. This is Two Quixotes for the Instituto Cervantes Sydney. I'm Zasha Rosen. Just to be clear, in the Spanish-speaking world, Cervantes is like Shakespeare. He's not even slightly obscure. He has a special book day, kind of. He has this chain of cultural institutes, you know, the Instituto Cervantes. And then there's this town. It's a beautiful city. It has all sorts of things you could expect in a typical Mexican hillside town. Alfonso's been there. I'm Alfonso. I'm from Mexico. The architecture of the city is completely colonial. You immediately transport yourself to the period when the Spanish uh, people were running the country. And you see beautiful big houses with beautiful architecture. There are beautiful laneways. In Spanish, we say callejones. Narrow street, but so beautiful. There are plenty of museums, cathedrals, churches with beautiful architecture, small parks. It even has mummies. Also, Guanajuato is famous because there are some mummies of Guanajuato. Except one part of the year. People come to Guanajuato for a very different reason. Last year, I was in the Cervantino Festival. It was my first experience there. And it was a great experience. Some of my friends told me, well, if you want to go to Guanajuato, you should go in October, which is when the Cervantino Festival is carried out. It was named Cervantino because the first play performance in the middle of the century was a play from Miguel de Cervantes. It started with plays, but now during the festival you can find other activities like literature, dancing. Just this huge annual culture festival in Mexico with a core of Cervantes plays, Don Quixote and the logo. No biggie. It's been compared to the Edinburgh Festival. And it's one of the biggest arts festivals in Latin America. Why in Guanajuato? Quixote scholar Vicente Pérez de León. Well, Guanajuato has to do with Cervantes, you know. It's just somebody has an idea, they keep on doing it. Guanajuato is more of a theatre. They do a lot of Cervantes interludes and drama plays, and they create this thematic park. A unique opportunity to see how you can get a canonic author and make it available for a mass of people. 
understand even people who are not very knowledgeable about Cervantes being able to understand and be fascinated by the author and be able to see that the theatrical effects were still valid in our days. A whole festival named after Cervantes. How could you top that? Except maybe with the star. So the star is located in southern constellation. Actually, you cannot see it from the majority of Europe. I'm Angel Rafael Lopez Sanchez, an Spanish astronomer working at the Australian Astronomical Observatory and Macquarie University. It is a constellation in the south that is called Ara, the altar. It is a classic constellation. It was defined by the Greeks. But if you really want to see that, you have to go to the southern hemisphere, for example, here to Australia. It is located very close to Scorpio, but identified with your own eye is challenging. But you can see with your naked eye. You have to look hard. But if you do look hard, you can find a star named Cervantes. It has four planets. That was the reason. They wanted to have not only Cervantes, but the four main characters from the Quixote. And it was challenging because a star with four planets, many people were proposing names for those planets. Which is a thing we can do. See planets around other stars. Those planets are called exoplanets. Uh, the exoplanet it is just a way of naming a planet that is not moving around our sun, but around another star. We have right now more than 2,000 exoplanets that we know that are around other stars, and this number is going to increase as crazy in the next few years. Normally, exoplanets are just named after the alphabet, starting with the second letter, B. For example, a famous star, 51 Pegasi. So the star is 51 Pegasi, and then we put for the, for the planet a B. So the planet will be 51 Pegasi B. C, D, E, F, you may name it. The International Astronomical Union wanted to get the public involved in naming a few of these stars. So they had a public naming vote on names suggested by astronomical groups from around the world. So the Spanish Society of Astronomy suggested Cervantes. The case for Cervantes, the Estrella Cervantes, or Cervantes star, was coming from Spain, from the Planetario de Pamplona, and the north of Spain, also from the Spanish Society of Astronomy, Sociedad Española de Astronomía, because it was one of the most challenging systems, because it has not only one planet, but four planets. It is the Muarai star, and we knew for sure that it had four exoplanets. So the idea from the Planetario de Pamplona was to give the name of Cervantes to Muarai, to the star, and then name Quixote, Dulcinea, Rocinante, y Sancho, the four main characters in the Quixote, because it is now the 400 years since the Quixote, the final part of the Quixote was written and, and the death of Cervantes. It was a complete success. It was the name that got the majority of the votation. And for that particular star, Muarai, and not only the name of Cervantes for the star, but the four planets, they got more than two thirds of the votation. It was the highest rank object in this event. So Cervantes has a star now. Don Quixote has a planet. Angel also has another connection to Don Quixote. He had a thesis problem. I wrote my PhD thesis in both Spanish and in English. So my PhD thesis I originally wrote in English and then I was asked by the university that I have to do it in Spanish. So I translated it to Spanish. It was presented that way. And after that, I have to translate everything into English again, just to publish the scientific papers and to have the PhD thesis as a whole in English. 
So it was a English PhD thesis, then a Spanish PhD thesis, then English papers from the Spanish PhD thesis because new things had turned up. Yes, exactly. It was a long PhD thesis, so it was more than 500 pages. That's actually about the same size as one part of Don Quixote. He had to get complex ideas from Spanish back into English. It took me a lot of time, a lot of effort. And perhaps if I had used that time in terms of translating from one language to the other, perhaps I would have now two, three more scientific papers because I could have used that time for my own research and not for plain translation. Translation is hard. Not many people really stop to think about it. Just ask Lilith. I think a lot of people have never actually stopped to think about what's involved in actually doing a literary translation. My name is Lilith Thwaites. I'm actually a retired academic now at La Trobe University in Melbourne. And when I retired, I finally turned to literary translation from Spanish into English, which is what I do now. There's very much that perception out there that with Google and Babel and this and that, you just pop it in and out it comes and you just clean it up a bit and that's it. And I think they miss the point of the amount of research that's involved, the skills involved, because you're not just translating words, you are translating another person's ideas and you're translating often completely different cultural contexts. I say to people, just stop for a minute and think about all the things that you have read for pleasure or that you have read because you needed to read them to be able to do your own research for whatever field you're in, science, whatever. And then take out all the ones that were not written in English and that you wouldn't have been able to read unless someone had translated it into a language that you can at least read, if not speak. And it's when you say things like that that they suddenly stop and start to think about, well, actually, you know, there's a point there. Few people stop to think, somebody actually translated this in such a way that I can read it in English, read it comfortably in most cases, if it's a good translation, and feel as if I know this book, I understand this book. In order for you to be able to do that, an awful lot of work has gone into it from somebody. And that's not just the physical work and translating words, but it's understanding enough of both cultures to be able to make that translation. Whose words are you actually reading when you read Proust in translation, Dostoevsky in translation, Don Quixote in translation? You're not actually reading Cervantes's words. You're reading someone's version of the words that Cervantes originally put on that piece of paper. Which brings us to a question. As English speakers, how did Don Quixote get to us? How did the translation work? So translation in Renaissance doesn't really exist. It's not very scientific. It's more adaptation than translation. And it was very difficult for the people at this period because there was no dictionary when you wanted to translate something. My name is Véronique Duchet. I am a professor of French, and my research focuses on translation into French during the Renaissance. When you translate a book these days, you have modern tools. Now translation has many tools. Translation is learned at school, you have seminars, you have some books about translation, you have dictionaries, you have grammars, you have these database for translators. 
And all of that did not exist in 16th century or in early 17th century. Languages were not taught at university or in schools. So the translators had to learn by themselves. And it was very difficult and they did not have many tools for translations. Before the grammar written by César Houdin, when you wanted to translate a word from Spanish, you had to rely on your intuition <laughs> or, or some etymology. You could presume that the word came from the Latin, so it was close to a French word. But sometimes you made very drastic errors. And that's why some things are sometimes very bad translated. <laughs> These were some of the obstacles, just to get Don Quixote into English and French, around the early 1600s, when it was first translated. How was it received? We know the playwright John Fletcher loved to borrow from Cervantes. Other reactions were mixed. Don Quixote was very popular in France, also for the intellectuals, because there were adaptations and also critics of the novel. In 17th century, there was a debate about novels. Were novels useful or was that a bad reading? So should we read novels or shouldn't we? And Don Quixote was often used as the bad example. So it was a critique against reading novels, showing that reading novel is useless. You'd lose your time. You'd better focus on more serious things. Is this a bit like grown-ups complaining teenagers spend too much time on Facebook and Tumblr? Is it that sort of argument? It's the same kind of argument. But this attitude changes with time across the channel in England. After the stage adaptations of the early 17th century, England in the 18th century begins to see Don Quixote in this new way. It's a period Amelia Dale knows well. My name's Amelia Dale. I'm a lecturer in the Department of English at the University of Sydney. My research specialty is in quixotic narratives in 18th century Britain, so adaptations of Don Quixote. Across England, there was a shift from considering Don Quixote and the quixotic figure in general as a comic character who's treated with mockery to a character who's eventually heroic and idealised and seen as better than the society that treats him so badly. And Henry Fielding in Joseph Andrews does that, especially with the character of Abraham Adams. He reads society as being the villains. It's society that's mad and strange and Parson Abraham Adams is too good for it. The shift to reading Don Quixote as a kind of romantic figure gets added more and more. You could say that that was always there in the original text, but it becomes unignorable by the 19th century. That romantic figure also gets mixed in with 18th century prejudice against women. And there was prejudice against novels as well. The novel was seen as a kind of lower-class, feminised genre, like rom-coms today. Something that doesn't require much thought, that is kind of derided because it's associated with women. But of course, at the same time, men were big consumers of novels and big producers of novels. The figure of the young woman becomes a kind of stand-in for male anxieties. They were really worried about this new technology in the same way that we might be worried now about young boys playing video games, they're going to be shooters. The novel was a new thing. There were anxieties about class and gender, anxieties that novels could lead to quicksets. A quixotic character usually consumes so many books that they then interpret the world through their favourite genre. So Charlotte Lennox's The Female Quickset 
is a young woman who reads all these chivalric romances, 17th century French romances about princesses and Cleopatra. And so she expects when any young man proposes to her that he should spend years in the woods going mad for her. She's surprised that people don't die on her command or, and she exiles men that she's upset with out of the country. Did they leave? Oh, well, they just maybe leave her house but just stay in the village and then she gets really upset. We still get continuation of these tropes as well in the kind of trope of the anxiety about young women reading Twilight, that they were going to just lust after vampires and be incapable of forming real relationships. We still see this idea that young women are really vulnerable to this kind of thing. Don Quixote can't put the book down, or once he puts the book down, he still has to keep on living it out. And so that anxiety that young people will behave in a similar way. The following century, the 19th century, you can actually see this kind of influence in Jane Austen. But Austen deals with the quicksort in some different ways. Jane Austen's always doing quite interesting things, and often the quicksort is right. So in Northanger Abbey, Catherine is right in identifying General Tilney as this kind of gothic monster. In Sense and Sensibility, you've got Marianne who imbibes all these tropes of the sentimental novel or the cult of sensibility, and this leads her to fall for Willoughby, and she's always reiterating all this verse and novels that she's consumed, and so that kind of leads to a lot of her heartbreak. Marianne is a fan, and of course Jane Austen has her own fans as well. There's a figure called the Janeite, who often appears in Austen criticism, but also in Austen-related films like Lost in Austen and Austenland. So the Austen consumer who can't separate reality from fiction and who just wants to marry a fictional Darcy character. That moment where Lizzie begins to fall for Darcy, there's no mistake that Darcy, in that wet shirt moment, is in the grounds of Pemberley. In the book, that's Darcy's giant house. Though, of course, that doesn't happen in the book. That's something that's been cemented in pop culture as a result of the Firth adaptation. And it's something that's always is going to stay there. So much of Darcy's power and his desirability in the book is tied up with his property. We can think about the way that adaptations shape the way we reread the text. And so 18th century readers of Don Quixote would always be reading Cervantes back through Henry Fielding, through Charlotte Lennox, their understanding of Don Quixote would be irrevocably shaped by the way that Quixotism has been adapted and written about. Not to mention that falling in love with a fictional world can have very real-world effects. Jane Austen fans visit Austen historic centres. Cervantes fans visit his historic houses in Spain. Here in Sydney, we have a different kind of fan, making a different kind of literary pilgrimage. My name is Stephanie Lake. And I'm the manager curator of May Gibbs's house and gardens called Nutcote. And I was a manager at the Jane Austen Centre in Bath. Here, Stephanie runs a historic house which used to belong to children's author and illustrator, May Gibbs. A satirist, she did cartoons that were very prevalent in the day, social comments. But when I talk about May Gibbs, I always say Snugglepot and Cuddle Pie. Most Australians know Snugglepot and Cuddle Pie growing up. She's much more than that. And what's the main reason people visit Nutcote? I think it's nostalgia. They come here just to relive childhood memories. And in Bath, Stephanie observed relatively similar reasons people were looking for Jane Austen. Jane Austen Centre, it was called, in Bath. 
she didn't actually live there. She did live on the street. It's more a trip down memory lane of her life in Bath, but also the work, the films and, and the stories. It's hugely popular. A lot of people come because they've sort of heard of Jane Austen, but they don't exactly know what she does. You would get people hoping that Jane Austen would be there to sign their books and you'd have to disappoint them and say, unfortunately, she hasn't been around for a while. What were their faces like when you'd say that to them? Very, very disappointed, yes. What are people looking for when they visit a Jane Austen centre? I think it's the same as here at Nutcote. It's this nostalgia. And then there's Andy. Remember Andy? He was in our Shakespeare episode. He grew up in Stratford-upon-Avon, Shakespeare's hometown. He's seen a lot of people visit a lot of historic houses. So in Stratford-upon-Avon, you've got Shakespeare's birthplace, you've got Anne Hathaway's house, you've got Mary Arden's home, so you've got Shakespeare's mother's place, you've got Shakespeare's wife's home, and so on. Why does he think people visit these places? For him, it's about getting closer to the artist. But that's not the only reason. I think it's each to their own. I think for some people, pilgrimages to particular sites for passions of theirs and so forth, I can understand why they would do that. And obviously, having grown up in Stratford, I've seen a lot of people doing that. I'll give the example of William Wordsworth. I've been to his cottage, Dove Cottage in the Lake District. And when you read his writing in the environment within which a lot of it was written, I think it certainly helps you to appreciate the work more deeply. So I think for some people they would have that experience, but I think for others, perhaps not. You know, perhaps it is a disappointing experience. At the Jane Austen Centre, a lot of the people Stephanie saw were looking for a different kind of encounter. It's very much a female destination people expected that perhaps Mr Darcy was a real person and they may find their own Mr Darcy. I think we all hope that we'll find Mr Darcy or our husband or partner may turn into Mr Darcy. You know, most of the time it turns into Cousin Collins or Mr Wickham. Listening to the way people approach Austin, or Twilight, or Don Quixote can make Quixote's quest to live in his own imaginary world sound much more familiar. Like a film lover, perhaps. Or a fan. Which is what we'll be talking about in our next episode. From Cervantes to Infinity. Do Quixote's is produced by Paula Yul. It's presented and edited by me. I'm Zasha Rosen. Made by the Instituto Cervantes in Sydney. Music in this episode by Rosie Catalano and Broke for Free. See the episode notes for full details. <laughs>